You are now listening to the October 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. In this hour, we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, his character, and his nature by discovering his attributes. Hello everyone, this is Susan Holtgrew, your host for our program, The Attributes of God. Last week, we talked about how God can be three and one. We called that the triune God. God is triune, meaning that he is one being who exists in three persons. Today, we are going to talk about the greatness of God. We all know that God is great, but just how great is he? When trying to understand God, there are two attributes that we must humbly discuss. They are transcendent and infinite. Let's look at the first word, transcendent. The dictionary defines it as exceeding usual limits, being beyond comprehension. Transcendent means that God is beyond the universe and beyond our intelligence and imagination. Because of the fall of Adam into sin and our sinful nature, we have a limit as to how much we can understand God. In researching the word transcendent, I have found it used in only one place and in one version of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, in the Revised Standard Version, Paul says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels to show that the transcendent power belongs to God and not to us. In the New American Standard Version that we use for our programs, Transcendent is replaced with surpassing greatness. When the Bible talks about God hiding his face from us, like in Psalm 13, verse 1, where the psalmist says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? We need to remember that God is far above and beyond us, and we can only access him when he reaches out to us. As God said to Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 9, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Transcendent also means that God is not united with his created universe. He is outside of it, and yet he reaches out to us, his created beings, and hears our prayers and wants an intimate relationship with him. What an awesome God we worship. Now let's take a look at the word infinite. The dictionary defines the word as exceeding indefinitely or endless, immeasurably or inconceivably great, or extensive, subject to no limitation or external determination. Now insert God. He is endless he is immeasurably or inconceivably great, and he is subject to no limitation. God is also beyond our understanding and above our standards. He has no limits because he is beyond limits. 
This is an encouraging thought when we face trials in our life. As Job said to God in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. A.W. Tozer said, An infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. He does not distribute himself that each may have a part, but to each one he gives all of himself as fully as if there were no others. God is so much greater than we are, and through the Bible, God has given us hints about what he is like. But it also says God's ways are mysterious and they are good beyond our imagination. So as I close this program for today, I would like you to take a moment and reflect on how this new knowledge of God affects the way you worship him and seek his face in prayer. Thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. God bless you all. Goodbye.
Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delph and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Well, last week, Alan, along with his bride, Polly Heller, and Dr. Ed Delph, the authors of the book, Learning How to Trust, they were discussing the very first step of regaining trust, and that is to remember. This week, we continue that conversation with the second step of regaining trust, and that is to release. Release is closely related to forgiveness. So we'll also focus on these three things in this episode. Number one, the difference between trust and forgiveness. Number two, we'll ask the question, can you live the Christian life and not understand forgiveness? And number three, how control is an illusion when it comes to forgiveness. All this material is coming from Alan, Polly, and Ed's book. It's titled, Learning How to Trust. And to learn more, visit walkandtalk.org for more information. The next step toward regaining trust is to release. And release is about forgiveness and letting go of those, the memories and the hurt. And, you know, the liar wants us to hold on to our hurt and to muck about in it um alan used to say you know we throw up emotionally and then we kind of slosh around in it you know we Great just want to we just sort of you want just to just ate breakfast i'm sorry <laughs> i, I got to see a counselor after that. <laughs> we want to replay the all the hurt and go over like we'll go through the motions of saying yeah i forgive you then we go back and we like the dog returns to its vomit, it says in in Proverbs, Proverbs we go back to the, to our hurt and we dredge up all of the old hurt and replay conversations. But he said this and you did that, and I can never really forgive you for that because if I forgive, you're going to do it again, and then it's you know, well that's a lie. Yeah. You know, releasing that person has nothing to do with with their behavior in the future. You forgive them because that's what God calls us to do because God has forgiven us and I'm no better than my neighbor in terms of... He says, in Ephesians, he says, forgive as I have forgiven you. So, I mean, that's forgiveness is something that is really commanded for us to do. Trust, though, I make the difference between forgiveness and trust because people think if I forgive, then I have to trust. But trust is built on behavior, behavior that says what I say is what I do, which is why we call our ministry Walk and Talk. Are you walking your talk? And, of course, Jesus was the only one that did that perfectly. 
and we're never going to get there in this life. But trust is built on the ability to see the behavior. So it's not, you know, not just hearing the Word of God, but I'm doing it in my marriage, in my relationship with my brother or sister who is so different than me that he just <laughs> wants to make me go crazy. You know? So, Alan, is it possible to actually love God and love people and not understand forgiveness? To love God and love people and not understand forgiveness. I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it's forgiveness is it's the cross, you know, and we've all been so deeply hurt. And in my own experience, I see people who are just so wrapped up in unforgiveness. Can they right. actually experience the Christian life without experiencing I mean, I, forgiveness? The thing is that, you know, which God do I know? Do mm-hmm. I know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who flung the galaxies into the universe, or is it a figment of my imagination? Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, J.B. Phillips wrote a book a long time ago when I first became a believer that I read called, Your God is Too Small. And I think many, we have little gods, uh, and we believe in a little G God rather than the big G God. I think if you truly have a relationship with God, and you truly know Him, and you know His Word, and are filled with His Spirit, then anything can be forgiven because it's a supernatural thing. I think the, the problem is we bring God down to our level. We are such an iPod, iPhone, I, I, I society right <laughs> no, it's now. Christ in me. It's Christ, it, yeah. Christ in yeah, me, the, the hope individual. of glory. Well, I think the part of remembering is remembering where I came from, who I was mm. before Christ came into my life, and my own failings, my own flesh, what I am like apart from Christ, and then the grace that was poured out on me that I accepted and received for myself so gratefully, and it was so abundant, and you know, we sing abundant and free. Well, am I going to receive that grace for myself and not extend that same grace toward somebody who has hurt me? You know, I think when Josh, our 32-year-old, died of colorectal cancer nine years ago, I remember praying, God, help me to remember how painful this is. Because I would counsel people that were going through grief and dealing with death, and I did funerals, and I was at their bedside. But when it was my son, uh, that pain was deeper than any other pain I've gone through. And during that time, I mean, I ended up going into a two-year clinical depression. I had to take medication. I was a recluse. There were all kinds of things. It was like a grenade went off in my life. And I knew God was good. I just didn't feel God was good. Mm -hmm. I knew the Word of God, but I just couldn't apply the Word of God. I knew that I should read the Word of God, but my brain was so scrambled, I couldn't think. So I want to remember that in order to propel me to the truth, which is five years later, I could say, I feel better. But during that time, uh, if I go back and remember, you know, you can remember the pain and remember God delivered you from it, or you can keep remembering the pain and just keep stuck in it. And there's a point in grief 
<laughs> I remember we went to this uh, program called Grief Share, and they said, you know, they spent a whole thing on, you know, you can get stuck in your grief, and uh, you can be remembering all the painful things that went on with this death. And I said, well, I'm not going through that. And then a month later, I went, uh-oh, maybe I'm stuck. And I needed the people of God. I needed the Word of God. I needed the love that people horizontally could give me as well as the vertical in order to encourage me to keep going on even though you don't feel it. You still can do it. I think to answer your question on the can people love and getting kind of back to that idea, I, I think you can to a degree. It's like a golfer. It's like you can have a golfer born with the innate ability, you know, his capacities over the chart. You know, I heard of a golfer, one of the quarterback, I think it was Kurt Warner. You know, the first time he played golf, he'd never lift up a golf club. He shot a 79. You know, <laughs> you know this, he's such a natural athlete. Or, is, and excuse me if I didn't get that the right person, but this was a true story. And, and they had such capacity. But, you know, it says the saying is something like this. You can be better than other people in an area, but you'll never be your best, mm. all right, mm. without dealing with that, without getting a coach, without building mm. up your competency. And so this book, you have it in your capacities. God says we all have trust in us. No matter if you don't think you have any trust at all, the Bible says you have trust in you. It's just a matter that capacity is there. It's just raising up the competency side that, see, your competency unleashes capacity. So it's in you. It's just a matter of getting you to that point. That and don't you think point. the amount of things you've gone through where finally you have trusted God? In other words, you get into a situation, like I remember a broken engagement that I went through, and man, my world was just coming to an end. And then I got through that. And then I had a swollen optic nerve in my eye, and the you know, usual cause of that is a tumor in the brain or uh, multiple or MS and they found out I had a brain which Polly was very you know she thought I didn't have one but they, <laughs> they proved that I had a brain but I didn't have a tumor but in that I had to ask myself do you really believe what you say you believe can you trust God with the fact that you may die and this goes back to the release idea that Polly mm -hmm. alluded to a bit you know there's an example I use how uh, monkeys, how in Africa, you know, the Africans would catch monkeys. They build a plexiglass box, drill a hole in it, put a banana in it, and the monkey reach in and grab the banana, and then try and pull it out. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. all he had to do is let go of the banana. Yeah. He's free, but he refuses to let go of that banana. And many of us just are stubborn, carnal nature. We just want to hold on and hold on and hold on. So this true. feels good to me. This feels good. I'm going to hold on to that resentment because it feels really good to me right now. Now, what they don't realize is just like that monkey, that's going to trap them. I mean, the Afro's going to come along and it's going to be monkey stew tonight. Okay? <laughs> so, um, yeah. it's the problem oh, is no. if you don't let, see, until the pain exceeds the fear, there'll be no change. Right. And so we can't stop that process. Sometimes just the pain in people uh, has to exceed the fear. Take the example of somebody who won't forgive somebody. Do you realize, you know, the person that's the perpetrator and you will end up at the exact same spot? Um, because if you don't forgive, you're turned over the tortures, the Bible says. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you become just as miserable as the other person. You both end up in the same spot guess what because you're handcuffed together there's only what you got to release the handcuffs and i'd rather forgive because i don't like the alternative 
I'd rather release because I don't like the alternative. It's not taking me where I'm feeding the wrong dog. If I could say that, you know, it's it's one of, when when you talk about release and this unforgiveness, it's almost like a spiritual transaction, yeah. isn't it? You forgive someone. There's a weight that's it's undescribable that you're like, whoa. Can you say more on that? Yeah. Well, it's the whole forgiveness is not an attribute. It's an attribute for the strong, not mm-hmm. the weak. It takes guts to forgive. You know. Mm-hmm. And it, humility, too. And humility. We don't have much of And, of course, the whole thing, the opposite is the anger. Anger not transformed is anger transferred. Mm. Well, and the so other thing about re- releasing is that I want to control the future. I want to control the outcome of this relationship. And, and so I'm holding on to it and holding on to it. And I need to consciously determine that I am not going to hold on to it anymore. It's not just saying, okay, I, I know I'm supposed to forgive him, so I forgive him. I need to say, okay, Lord, this person is you. So I don't, it's not just releasing from, it's releasing to. I release this person, I release this situation into the capable hands of God, of Jesus, Lord. You take this person now. I know that if, if I keep trying to hold on to this, I'm just making a mess of it. It's, it's hurting me. It's hurting all my relationships. So I'm giving it over. I'm letting it go. But I'm letting it go into your hands because I know I can trust you to deal with it wisely and perfectly. Mm-hmm. Pauline, if I could add to that just a little bit. You know, a lot of times I remember people, you know, talk about, oh, I got delivered from demons, or mm-hmm. I got delivered from depression, or mm-hmm. I got, uh, you, aren't, you, you weren't delivered from, you were delivered to. Mm. And I think that's a big, see, when you let go of the banana, you're, then you're free to go to the next right. step. You're free, you're not delivered from demons, you're delivered to your purpose, call, vision, and destiny. Well, and that's, and that's we, you know, that's the advantage. That's the revelation of, you know, you can hold on to it or you can move on. All right. And then the next step is to rethink. The way we think about things is going to determine <laughs> how we live our lives. And we have a the section in the book says you must realize that you haven't lost your ability to trust you've just placed your trust in untrustworthy things we can still trust but we have to change the way we are thinking about trust and thinking about people and thinking about our lives and i know that for myself that i used to feel like i was a victim of my own thoughts thoughts would come into my head and there was nothing I could do about them. And those thoughts would just swirl around and swirl around and take me deeper and darker into like, kind of like the reverse that is the of the definition a cyclone. of a melancholy person. Yes. <laughs> just 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 kind of swirling around in a, a downward spiral because this is where once I get on the track of this thought, this is where this thought always leads. And that track just sort of gets embedded. And even though I hate where it's taking me, I don't know how to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And what we have to learn is that we 
can change the way we think. We can replace old thoughts with new thoughts. We can replace lies with truth. Right, and then we talk about that in the book about, you know, Romans 12, 1 and 2, that don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you can know what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God, that when we, but we have to reflect. <laughs> and I think we live in a world that doesn't have enough time to just reflect and even see where we are. Because the first step to health, anybody, any counselor would say, is the recognition that I need help. Mm -hmm. And in order to recognize that, you have to stop running from your pain, your fear, your shame, your guilt, whatever it is, and reflect. And then if you are reflecting on the Word of God, you have a template that's perfect. It doesn't change. The culture may change. The way people counsel may change. The Word of God, and He does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what I encourage people to do is reflect on the truth of who God says you are, rather than spending so much time saying what you don't want to be. You can be meditating. I think Rick Warren said, if, if you're a worrier, you're good at meditation, you're just meditating on the wrong thing. You know? <laughs> and and right. so if you're good at, at remembering all this stuff in the past, but if you release it and then move toward God rather than it's like driving, looking in your rearview mirror. Eventually, you're going to have an accident because you were not meant to keep looking in the rearview mirror. Not to say that it, it didn't hurt, it wasn't traumatic, it wasn't bad. We're just saying you got to trust God and his word in the power of his spirit to move forward in your life. Well, I love that Philippians 4, 8 says, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are lovely, honest, pure, think on those things. Like, you have the choice. You can choose what you are going to think about, and God even gives us a list. You know, think <laughs> on these positive things. Don't dwell on But it's on like me. If, if you give me the list for the groceries, but I don't take it with me <laughs> or I don't look at it, I pick up ice cream chips and oh, what, yeah. you wanted something else? <laughs> yeah. I'm so glad that I'm not the only one who goes to the grocery store, forgets the list, and just wings it, and then buys all the junk food. Well, let me ask you this. Do you tend to worry about all the problems in your life rather than meditating and trusting on what God says about you. And if you do, well, you know what that, that means, don't you? It means you just got a bad case of the normals. I mean, we all do it. But see, God in his infinite mercy and grace, he shows us how to turn that worry into healthy meditation on him and his word. Next week, we'll continue our conversation on learning how to trust with Alan, Polly, and Ed, and we'll discuss three things. Number one, what do decisions about trusting God and trusting others reveal about us? Number two, we're going to learn to rethink the way that we think about trust. And number three, we're going to learn the next several steps in the process of how to trust. I want to encourage you to visit walkandtalk.org to learn a little bit more about Alan Heller and the ministry of Walk and Talk. You can order the book, Learning How to Trust, along with other resources for you, your family, and your church. And then lastly, 
You'll also be able to sign up for one of Alan's upcoming trust webinars. During the webinar, you can ask your own personal questions to Alan himself. Well, on behalf of Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delph, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week. Ministries awaits for your participation for listener survey. Your opinion is highly valued. All gathered information will be for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries. It will go towards our ministry's efforts to share the gospel. You may participate by completing the questionnaire survey delivered to your address or go online at www.heartandsoul.org. Our return address for paper survey is 12802 North 28th Drive, Phoenix, Arizona 85029. This survey ends November 15th. We wait for your participation and thank you for your input. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Blatt of Radical. Today's topic is 
worship, based on John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to John chapter 4. And today is biblical worship. From the start, I want to jump right to the why. So why is this important for your life? This is the primary truth I hope you take away from today. You might write it down. God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him. Let me make it more personal. God has designed your soul to be satisfied in worshiping him. Maybe say it another way. Our souls, your soul, will never be satisfied apart from worshiping God. Now that's a bold statement. I just said it doesn't matter how big or luxurious your house is, it won't satisfy you. I just said it doesn't matter how much money you make, it won't satisfy you. I just said doesn't matter who you marry, doesn't matter what degree or rank or status you achieve, doesn't matter what job you have or position you attain, it doesn't matter how healthy you are, how comfortable your 401k is, none of these things will satisfy your soul. Your soul is designed by God to be satisfied in worshiping Him. Today I want to call you to satisfaction. To satisfaction that is deeper and truer and fuller and longer lasting than anything else, even the best things this world has to offer you. So, listen to this story. John chapter four, verse one. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and parted again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. First disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, 
Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You see it? And here's a woman who has sought satisfaction in relationships with man after man after man, none of whom could satisfy her ultimately. Here's a woman who has sought satisfaction in her reputation, only to now find herself alone, drawing water by herself in isolation. Here's a woman who has sought satisfaction in her religion, but even that has left her empty. You think about all these thirsts in her life? Because every one of us today has the same thirst. Every single one of us thirsts to believe in something, someone We all want to believe that which is true, right, and good. Every one of us thirsts to belong. Loneliness is one of the most painful human emotions and experiences. We long not just to be known, but to be valued by somebody else in some way. And every one of us thirsts to be loved. Even the most calloused heart among us longs for the affection of a parent or a spouse or a friend. And just like this woman, we try to quench our thirst in all kinds of ways. In people, in jobs, in possessions, in pursuits, in various worldly pleasures. But we constantly find ourselves coming up empty. And meanwhile, in the middle of it all, Jesus is saying, I offer you different water. The kind of water that will quench your thirst forever. You won't have to look elsewhere. The kind of water that I give wells up to eternal life. It lasts forever. How do I get this water, the woman asks. And Jesus engages her in a conversation about what? About worship. Jesus says, God is seeking you because God desires to satisfy you. And God has designed your soul to be satisfied in worshiping him and seeking him and knowing him and loving him. When you think about it, this is the essence of what it means to believe in Jesus, to become a Christian. It's actually how Jesus defines belief in the book of John. Two chapters later, John chapter 6, verse 35, using very similar imagery, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So follow this. To believe in Jesus 
is to say, I have sinned. I have sought my own way in this world, apart from God's way in his word. And my sin has left me empty. My sin leads to death. Indeed, it's true. I can't find satisfaction, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross and for my sin and rose from the grave in victory over it to make it possible for me to be forgiven of all my sin, reconciled to a relationship with God in whom my soul can be satisfied forever. This is salvation. Do not miss this. Salvation is not just saying some words in order to save your skin for eternity and then just living like the rest of the world, running after all the same stuff this world is running after. That is not biblical salvation. Salvation is not forgiveness of your sin accompanied by emptiness of your soul. Salvation is forgiveness of your sin accompanied by satisfaction for your soul. Salvation is not just forgiveness from sin, it's freedom from sin and freedom from the pursuit of satisfaction in this person or that possession, this position or that pleasure. Salvation is satisfaction in knowing and worshiping God which totally transforms the tenor of what happens when we as the church, as a group of Christians, gather together. Oh, see how a right understanding of salvation transforms worship from duty to delight. Christians, true Christians, don't gather together for worship because they have to. True Christians gather together for worship because we want to. This is not some sick sense of religious obligation where we think we need to do this in order to appease our God, gain some kind of credit with him so that maybe he will bless us in return. That's the way religions in the world work and Christianity is totally different. True Christians do not gather together out of a sense of obligation. True Christians gather together out of a sense of celebration. You see, worship is something you are supposed to do or something you long to do. I ask that. I even use the phrase true Christians because I fear that many professing Christians, even today, as religious routine, but there is, if we're honest, at the root of our hearts, a real lack of desire for God. And if you don't desire God, then it's at least worth asking if you really know God. I fear that many professing Christians can go for years through a dull casual, monotonous sense of religious motion, totally missing the depth of what God has designed for your soul. And I long for every one of you to see and experience worship, not as duty, but as delight. Not as something you're supposed to do 
on a Sunday such that all sorts of other things so easily drown out worship on your priority list in this world, but such that you see worship as something you long to do on a Sunday that becomes the priority around which your week revolves. Now, obviously I'm talking here about worship together as a church when there is a sense in which, biblically, worship is all of life, something we do all of the time. We aren't just satisfied in God when we gather once a week. We're satisfied in God as we scatter all week long. And everything we do, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, is for the glory of God, eating and drinking and working and playing and sleeping. The Bible teaches that all of life is worship. Yet, the Bible also calls the church to gather together for the purpose of worship. Hear the word of God to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another, to pray together. So here's what I want to do. I want us to think about how this truth that God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him, I want us to think about how this truth shapes our understanding of worship as a church and specifically shapes our priorities in worship as a church. Because I'm convinced we're totally confused on those. But the danger is we can prioritize all those things we can draw a crowd and we think yeah this is worship when we're missing the whole point we don't want to miss the point particularly fellas when the satisfaction of our souls is contingent on not missing the point if God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him then we want to worship him the way he's designed us to worship him and I've been in numerous worship gatherings here and around the world sitting on a floor, crammed into a room in the blazing heat or the freezing cold with no band and, quite frankly, bad music, yet deeply satisfying worship of God. In fact, I would say some of the most satisfying experiences before God in worship have been in settings like that. Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, we prioritize biblical revelation. The word truth of God. Jesus says to this woman in John 4, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. He says to her, you can't worship what you don't know. Knowledge of God is necessary for worship of God. And knowledge of God is only possible because of revelation from God, which is why God's word is central in our worship. It's why we take such a significant chunk of our time together in worship to open the Bible and learn from it. Because, well, think about it. If God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him, then we want to know who he is. We want to know how he calls us to live. This is what the word does. The Bible shows us who God is. Every week as we open this word, we learn we see, we discover more and more who God is. And the more we see him, the more we will savor him. The more we see God, the more we will be satisfied in God. God never, ever gets old. The Bible shows us who God is and how God calls us to experience life in him. Psalm 1611, you make known to me path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Who among us doesn't want to know the path of life? 
Who among us doesn't want fullness of joy? Do you want to taste pleasures forevermore? Then get off your phone and get into God's word. Get off Fox News or CNN, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat for hours, for just a few minutes. So this is why we want to saturate worship with the word. This is why we want God's word to be central, not just in our reading and studying like we're doing now, but in, in singing and praying, everything we do in worship. Biblical revelation is primary. That's why I say, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, and if you don't, we would be glad to get you one. We bring God's word to worship because we prioritize God's word in worship. You can't worship without it. You can't worship God without the revelation of God. And not just in his word, through his spirit. This is a second priority for us in worship, spiritual direction. Biblical revelation and spiritual direction. In the words of Jesus, true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. So we want the word of God to inundate our worship and we want the spirit of God to orchestrate our worship, to direct it, to lead it, to guide it. Worship is a spiritual supernatural activity. God's spirit would take this word and just cause it to land on all kinds of hearts in all kinds of different ways. There's over 10,000 people who hear this word today. The spirit of God will take this word in 10,000 different directions according to 10,000 different circumstances. This is spiritual, supernatural work that's happening like right now. And not just in preaching, but in singing and, and hearing testimonies. So, this is why we must prioritize the direction of God's spirit in our worship gatherings. And sometimes the spirit leads in directions we had not planned. We want to be sensitive to that. Better put sensitive to him, sensitive to God, how he is leading, working in our midst. This is not just a show to put on, a program to get through. This is a meeting with God. And he can take this meeting whatever direction he wants to take this meeting. We prioritize biblical revelation and spiritual direction. We prioritize community participation. So this is where I want to just pause and point out the obvious difference between worship alone with God and worship with church before God. One by yourself, one with the body of Christ. One primarily about an individual with God. The other primarily about a community with God. Both are awesome and needed, but they're different. Which means that when we gather together as a church, we need to remember this is not about each of us individually. As such, we need to be aware of individualistic approaches to worship with the church, thinking all the time about ourselves and our preferences, whether or not I like this song or I like that sermon. When worship as a church is not about each of us individually. It's about all of us together. We're a community of faith that comes together for worship. Which is why as, as helpful as our services streamed on the internet is for people who are traveling or in special circumstances, it is not intended to be your primary means of worship. It is vital to your spiritual life. And I'm like looking right at the camera right now. Be with the body whenever possible. Not just alone. This is also why, well, when I travel and preach in different places, sometimes I'll, I'll hear a musical worship leader say, just imagine a box around yourself. Pretend like the people around you aren't even there. Because we prefer one another. It's not thinking about ourselves. Particularly in a community like ours with 
over 100 different ethnicities in our church. We don't want our, our worship gatherings to be dominated by one style or preference or ethnicity. We want our worship to be a clear expression of the diversity in our community together and singing. Just want to grow in this continually and singing and praying and, and preaching. I obviously am from a particular ethnicity with a particular background and particular experiences. It's always helpful to me when someone from a different ethnicity or background comes to me and says, you know, the way you shared that landed on my heart in this way, in a way I never meant it to land. It's so helpful for me to hear that because I want to be aware of how, how worship, the word, is affecting us across our community together. So all this to say, I need, we all need to be aware of individualistic approaches to worship and to be aware of spectator approaches to worship. If I could state the obvious, this is not the World Cup or the Stanley Cup. We're gathered together to watch the action on the field or on the ice. We are gathered to participate in the action. Church is not an audience of spectators. Church is a community of worshipers. And this is huge, especially when we're used to coming together here at other campuses in theater-style setups where so much centers on what happens on the stage. We need to consciously remind ourselves that we don't come together to watch worship. We come together to worship. That's why we sing together. We read scripture together. We pray together. We study the word together. Even now, I'm obviously speaking, but in both speaking God's word and listening to it, I hope we're all worshiping. Hope that as you're hearing and listening and your heart is rising in worship to God, we can never let worship decompose into a vicarious experience where the many in the congregation are merely watching the few on the stage who at best are worshiping and at worst are performing. If when you ever find yourself slipping into spectator mode in the church, consciously remind yourself, no, 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 I'm a participant in this picture. I am, together we are encountering God through singing and praying, listening preaching and on and on and on. We prioritize community participation before God. So, so next, if our souls are designed to be satisfied in worshiping God, then we prioritize reverent affection. And I use both those words intentionally. First, reverent. We have gathered together right now to worship God. Now just think about that for a minute. We've gathered together to worship God, the God who rules over the whole world. The God who spoke and a universe came into being. The God who created you. In Psalm 139 this week, like formed your inward parts. The God who is sustaining you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, worshipers of God, let us be careful never to become casual with God. Which, let's be honest, is so easy for us to do. Like we can walk into a room, like today, find our seat, look around, maybe start singing, bow our heads in prayer, even open up our Bibles. All the while, our minds never come face to face with the fact that we're gathered together before God. I pray that no one will ever watch our worship and think those people are bored with God. Let us never walk away from worship critically assessing, did worship today please me? 
Let us always walk away from worship, humbly asking, did worship today please God? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. We've gathered together today to express love for God. Don't miss it. The most important component of worship is not any instrument on a stage. It's not even human instruments like our mouths that sing and pray and preach. Or ears that hear and listen. Or hands that clap and rise. Or legs that stand or kneel. The most important component of our worship is our hearts. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 tells us to sing and make melody with your heart, not with your mouth. Your mouth that makes what you do worship or your hands or your feet or anything else. It's your heart that makes what you do worship. That's why Jesus in this conversation with this woman at the well totally shifts the focus from externals to internals. Where you worship on this mountain, that mountain, internals, who you worship, how you worship with your heart, which makes total sense when you remember the truth at the heart of all of this, God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him. And it will be evident in our worship whether or not our souls are satisfied in God. Jesus asked this woman, why don't you go call your husband? She says, I don't have one. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And living with a man who's not your husband now. Doesn't that seem a bit bold? Even insensitive? To just go right to her sin and her struggles like that? Don't miss this. At least two reasons why Jesus did this with her. The same reasons why Jesus wants to do the same thing in every one of our lives. And these reasons are good. One, because Jesus desires to cleanse us from our sin. Jesus doesn't expose this woman's sin for her condemnation. Jesus does this for her salvation. Jesus does this because Jesus delights in taking the dirtiest of sinners and making them clean. And we can't truly worship God with our lives if we're not honest with God about our lives. And this is a constant temptation among us to come into a worship gathering like this, holding on to sin, maybe even harboring secret sin in our hearts, our minds, our lives, our relationships, trying to pretend it's not there, going through the motions, sing the songs, listen to the sermons, then move on with our lives. And in the middle of it all, Jesus is saying, stop. And one, it's not hidden. He knows it. He's omniscient. He knows everything. You're not fooling God. You're fooling yourself. And two, why would you hide your sin from a God who has made the way for you to be forgiven of it? Oh, man or woman, student, come before God in honest confession of sin. And today, this is the word of God for many people today. Let's be a church that helps one another in this, that lovingly confronts one another in sin, in our worship. Just so you know, I totally realize it's more uncomfortable to call out sin and idolatry and immorality in our lives than it is to stay silent on those things. Like it'd be a lot easier as a pastor preacher to not call out the idolatry and immorality in us, around us. We could probably draw more crowds if we stay more quiet on those things preach sermons about how people are okay and people 
will come. You call out sin, you confront nominal, half-hearted Christianity, name, impurity, and immorality, and idolatry in our lives and our families, and the crowds may dwindle. But this is where we must not buy into the lie that the more people we have in seats, the more successful we are in the church. God is more concerned about the sanctity of our lives than he is the size of our church. And we are fooling only ourselves if we think we can worship God without honesty before God. That don't miss it paves the way for grace from God. Oh, let Jesus confront you in your sin so that he can cleanse you of your sin. And, and that's just one reason. The second reason Jesus does here, this here in John 4, not just because Jesus desires to cleanse us from our sin as if that's not enough, but also Jesus desires to comfort us in our sorrow. So on one hand, we think about how bad this woman's sin was, but think deeper for a minute. Jesus is addressing head on the pain that was in this woman's life from man after man after man who had abandoned her. Jesus wants her to be honest with him so that she can experience comfort that her soul needs amidst the hurt she has experienced. This is such good news in a hurting world. So worship is not us saying together, all right, let's put aside all the hard things we're walking through in life and come aside and worship. Just all those trials, all those challenges you're walking through, enduring right now, like put them aside, we're gonna come in and worship. No, you bring all those things and you lay them before God because he is big enough to handle all of them. Just read through the Psalms, the Bible's hymn book, and you see this picture over and over. I know that on any given Sunday, including this one, some of you barely made it into the building today because your hearts are so heavy. And worship is designed by God to meet you where you are. Because the God we worship meets you where you are. We worship God. We experience the depth of satisfaction he's designed for our souls when we are real and honest before God. And just playing religious games. We're honest before God with our sin and our struggles. Which then leads to gospel celebrations. So here's another priority in worship. It's the good news of John 4, 26. The Messiah is here. The Christ has come. Jesus has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. He's risen from the grave in victory over sin. And he's guaranteed us eternal life in him. That's the gospel. And that is worth celebrating every single week. Oh, make the connection here. When we, make the connection with the last one. When we confess our sin honestly before God, 1 John 1, 9, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because of the gospel. Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we confess our struggles honestly before God, our hurts, our pain, our worries, our concern, God meets us with the hope of Christ. The hope we have in Christ. We're reminded we're safe, secure, even satisfied in God no matter what's happening in the world around us. Why? Because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we sing this gospel. We preach this gospel. We pray according to to this gospel. We celebrate this gospel and stories and testimonies from each other's lives. And think about it. In his word, God has given us two visible pictures of gospel celebration for worship, baptism and the Lord's Supper. They're both gospel celebrations. Baptism, someone confessing. They put their faith in Christ. Dead, alive in him. And we celebrate the gospel with them every time somebody's baptized. 
Similarly, in the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ represented in these elements that we celebrate on a regular basis in worship. We prioritize gospel celebration and worship. Two more priorities. Let me bring this to a close. So one, intentional intercession. We prioritize in worship. We're clearly commanded in God's word to pray with and for one another. So we must do this when we gather together for worship. And I use the word intentional here because we need, we must make sure that prayer in our worship is intentional. Prayer must never be something we do like to make a smooth transition from one part of the service to another. Prayer must never be something we do just so that people can rearrange things on the stage. It feels horrible to even say that. I trust we realize it's possible for somebody to say, like, let's pray in a service like this. We all bow our heads and within seconds, like we're all focused on all kinds of different things and we're not focused on the fact that we're talking to God. Our minds in all kinds of different directions. Suppose prayer like that is not pleasing to God and it's not good for our souls. This, this, I mean, it's like I sit down with my kids before a meal and we're pray. And I just periodically, I say to them, and I'm really saying to myself, let's remember who we're talking to. Let's not just say some words so we can dive into the pizza. Like it's, we're talking to God. Like we need to remind ourselves of this. Intentional intercession. And finally, we prioritize global commission. So if we had time, we could study the rest of John 4, see how this woman leaves Jesus. The disciples reunite with Jesus and Jesus immediately starts talking about mission with them. And then the woman comes back and she brings all kinds of Samaritans with her to meet Jesus. And the picture is clear. True worship always leads to mission. Always. Which makes sense, right? When your soul is satisfied in God, that's not just a satisfaction that is welling up in you. That's a satisfaction that is flowing out from you. So this is why in our worship we give our resources. We're compelled to for the sake of mission in the world. This is why we end our worship gatherings every single week saying the Great Commission together. Why? Because there are millions of people in the DMV who do not know the satisfaction that's found in God alone. We live next to them. We work next to them. We go to school with them. We play and shop and eat and do all kinds of things alongside them. Do we want them to be satisfied in God? Oh, don't miss it. This worship is the fuel and the goal of mission. Follow this. So it's the fuel. Like we share the gospel with others. Why? Because we want them to experience gladness in God. That's, that's why we look for opportunities all week long around the DMV to share the gospel. Like 10,000 of opportunities to share the gospel this week. All the places we are going. I think about this last week, right here in this community, I had the opportunity, by God's grace, to be in a why? And some people think that's crazy. Friends, family members, co-workers think that's crazy. Why would you do that? Here's why. Because we want people all over the world to be satisfied in God forever. Their eternity is worth our lives on this earth. If this whole rescue operation is happening like it is in Thailand to save these boys, then how much more should we who have the living water of Christ in us be driven to marshal all of our resources in our lives and our families and the church to get the gospel of those who are on a road that leads to an eternal hell? Especially when we've tasted living water that lasts forever. We're free to give our lives overflowing on mission. Worship drives all of that. Mission here and around the world, follow this, 
only makes sense if God is all satisfying. If God's not all satisfying, then why mission? If God is all satisfying, then of course mission. Worship's the fuel of mission and, follow this, worship's the goal of mission. So one day, mission will be no more. We're not always going to read the Great Commission to one another. One day, disciples will have been made among all the nations, and we will gather together around the throne with every nation, tribe, and tongue. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to worship forever. Not just with our songs, but with life to the full. You know why? Because God has designed our souls to be satisfied in worshiping him for all of eternity. So let's live toward that end, and let's celebrate that as a church every single week in a way that brings glory to him and satisfaction to our souls. Let's pray. Oh God, even right now, help us to focus and think about who you are. God, we praise you for the privilege of worship. We deserve in our sin to be cast out of your presence. The fact that we're meeting with you right now, oh, by your grace, we give you thanks, we praise you. And we pray that you would be honored, glorified in our lives, in our church, in worship. And we trust that when we worship according to your design, we will experience satisfaction in our souls. Thank you, God, for saving and satisfying us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.